brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. This is the way, Higher Side Chatters. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and when we think about technological progress on the human timeline and all the 1950s versions of what our world would bring, it seems that we're quite a bit off script. Not only are we lacking the personalized silver saucers and cheery meal-making robot maids, but instead the false promises of Tomorrowland have been replaced with dystopian digital surveillance, intense fields of EMF radiation, and rarely a useful tool that isn't paid for with data collection and market research to further commit you to a bland existence of screen addiction and a never-ending struggle to keep it all charged. Sure, the screen is smaller, the internet is here, and the vacuum can fumble around on its own. But how advanced have things gotten, really? NASA's extraordinary budget and decades of focus have yielded almost no major changes to rocketry, no exciting daily moon shuttles or space elevators, just RC cars of tin foil taking selfies in the Nevada desert and calling it Mars. The advancements in food science and industrialized diets have left many of us weak and obese, with GMO crops compromising the global food supply with all the altruism of an invading army. And with malpractice, medical errors, and death by medicine being the third leading cause of death, even by the most conservative statistics, I'm not sure they've got it all worked out there either. So it seems the biggest achievement of modern technology is the cult-like following it's amassed despite its shortcomings, and when you consider where they might have been getting their ideas... Maybe that's to be expected. Well, when it comes to the work of today's returning guest, Chris Knowles, he has pulled on so many fascinating threads throughout the years on the Secret Sun blog, from the strange songs of the siren Elizabeth Frazier to the potent symbolism of award shows and pop culture rituals. But it's the material nested beneath the umbrella term Lucifer's Technologies that has fascinated your humble host the most, and with Chris having added a few logs to that fire recently, it gives us plenty to talk about as society crumbles down around us. Chris has no shortage of THC appearances at this point, and I'm psyched to do it again, hot on the heels of his new book entitled The Endless American Midnight, a massive collection of the best of the best from the Secret Sun blog, as well as the launching of the Secret Sun Institute of Advanced Synchromysticism on the Patreon platform. And let's not forget to mention his recent novel, He Will Live Up in the Sky, A Wild Ride, If There Ever Was One, and his classics, Our Gods Wear Spandex and the Secret History of Rock and Roll, 
As busy as ever, the chronicler of humanity's decline, apocalypse watchdog extraordinaire, and straight-shooting synchro-mystic sage of the Secret Sun blog, Chris, my man, welcome back to the higher side. Oh, what an introduction. <laughs> I try. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to blurb that on my next book. Yes, I'm honored. <laughs> and this is real exciting, man. Lucky number nine, it seems. And, uh, you know, I checked in with you just at the right time as one of my favorite topics seems to have resurfaced to the forefront of your mind as well, which revolves around what you call Lucifer's technologies and the Roswell working. You say on the blog, this is one of the most requested topics for you to revisit as well, and for good reason. To get us started here, what would you say is the overall thesis of this thread or the hypothesis you're working from? Oh, man, it's so complex because the series was very much written in one of my OCD jags, you know, where I'm just sort of in manic mode for like a week and a half, just <laughs> staying up all night reading everything and writing and all that kind of thing. So, it was a, you know, in my most, you know, when I started the uh, series again, I talked about how like it wasn't the most organized work that I've ever done. It was just very haphazard, but, you know, it was just like that thrill of discovery, finding things. But, you know, basically the thesis is I was looking at the explosion of technology, particularly electronics, after World War II and how that coincided with the dawn of the UFO age with Roswell and so on. But it also coincided with the rise of the national security state and the National Security Act. So you had this interesting confluence of events that all seemed to tie together in very interesting ways. And then when I really started looking at Roswell, and I was looking at, for instance, Philip Corso's very controversial and not so credible book, Day After Roswell, and then there was another interesting thing that I remember reading back in the day, like this is back in like the Usenet days, this guy named Jack Shulman had showed up out of nowhere and was talking about like, you know, that he had been associated with Bell Labs and he knew all these people. And he just said this whole story that rose up around the invention of the microchip was just absolute nonsense, that they didn't have the capabilities of doing the work that led to the creation of the transistor at Bell Labs at the time, that you needed a lab like Sandia Labs out in New Mexico or something. You needed something with some heavy-duty equipment to you know, mess around with all those elements that they use to, you know, germanium and silicon and so on, to develop the transistor. So that really caught my attention because that was much more, you know, Corso was just kind of blowing smoke and just crediting everything with UFOs and everything. And, you know, the thing that I had always wondered and a lot of people have pointed out is like you know if we came across a ufo with i mean even if the technology was like 300 years advanced from mars how would we even understand it how would we be able to take it apart and reverse engineer it i think it would be extremely difficult and the fact that the transistor shows up months you know six months after the Roswell, you know, and before that, the Kenneth Arnold sightings that really kicked the whole thing off. It just seemed to me like that was just a bit too quick of a turnaround. You know, people have pointed out to me, like when I talk about the transistor and everything, they pointed out, well, you know, this was in development and so on and so forth. And these are just, this is just like the kind of people who just like read a Wikipedia article and accept a one sentence 
claim. But, you know, I went back and I really looked, you know, at the provenance of the transistor. And it is strange. I mean, it, it does really pop up out of nowhere. And everybody thought these guys were crazy. And some people had thought that this could never be done because of the limitations with the physics and so on. And then they did it. And then, you know, it led from one thing to another. But, you know, what's been the result of this? The result of it has been this worldwide surveillance grid and the massive acceleration of inequality and so on and social discohesion. So I began to wonder what if this were, you know, a kind of Trojan horse? What if the electronics revolution was in fact a Trojan horse? I mean, because doing stuff like this is great, right? But look at all the things that we've really lost. You know, we've lost so much as a culture and as a society because of the onset of all this technology. And you just begin to wonder, is this like what they call the, you know, the classic Faustian bargain, you know? Did we sell our souls to the devil for this amazing technology, but we just don't realize how much it's cost us, you know? We don't realize how much we've lost because of that. Right, right. Yeah, I think it's super fascinating. And maybe at the time it wasn't popular, but now it's a very popular idea to, to think about all the alien stuff as well. Is this a multidimensional entity rather than some gray from a foreign planet, like that reductionist materialist attitude of like, well, if there's any contact, it must come this way because there is no spirituality in the world anymore. But now when you think about a lot of situations where some contact is made, it's usually... A voice in the head, like Tesla used to talk about having some voice in his head that was giving him ideas or a ritual summoning of some kind, like uh, the Jack Parsons stuff. That's kind of what he was always up to or like a shamanic journey. I mean, they say that the Dogon tribe knows a lot of things about the solar system they shouldn't be able to know because of their connection to the world through shamanism. And they're fairly isolated, so it seems like maybe we should trust them. Or the ayahuasca thing. How did people learn to combine this root with this vine? It's like, of all the combinations in the Amazon, it came to them from some disembodied voice, really, some spiritual entity. So maybe this is the same. I don't know if you consider it like they called something up and then a, a saucer did crash, or is the whole saucer thing fabricated. I mean, it seems like something physical was picked up in the desert. But what do you think about the mechanisms for that exchange? If it wasn't as presented, what do you think the, the story behind that story is? Well, see, that's the whole crux of the issue for me, because I'm trying to get to what I call like the unified weird theory. You know, how does all this stuff play together? Because I have all these different parts, all these different things that I've been writing about for the past 15 years on The Secret Sun. And I've really come to realize that I'm just looking at the same phenomenon from all these different vantage points, but it is all connected. And I really start to see that, like, you know, magic and ritualism are at the center of all world events and developments and so on. And we've been so conditioned to not see it, even though it's right in front of us, or to not take it seriously and to not see it for what it is that we're kind of blind to the process of it, that the rituals that are constantly going on that I've detailed, particularly the past four or five years now, since the Gothard Tunnel 
extravaganza, which I still can't wrap my head around. But since that time, I've really come to see that the rituals and their connection to world events and developments can't be separated. And I've really come to see like technology are the tools. The technology is the tool, right? But the ritual is the blueprint. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like we have this technology to reach all these goals and to accomplish all these things. But I think that at least in the mind of the people that are in control of a lot of this, you know, I don't have this sort of grand Illuminati theory. I think that power is very fragmented. But I think that the ritualism is the motivation. It's the blueprint. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, Mm -hmm. so you can't separate the two. And I think when you get down to it, like, what is the ritualism? What is the ritualism, the occult, you know, what people call the occult, a term I don't like because it's actually a misnomer because nothing is occult anymore, right? But, you know, what is the ritualism and, and the occultism and the witchcraft and all this kind of stuff? What is it really about? It's about gaining the favor of these entities. The Romans called them daemons, D-A-I-M-O-N-S, and then that became demons, demons, angels, elves, fairies. (laughs) You know, Mm. I mean, these myths are universal. And another thing that's universal throughout history, you know, is that these entities like to make bargains. You know, if you give me this, I'll give you this. You know, I'll give you this knowledge. I'll give you this advanced knowledge. I'll give you this technology. And, you know, one of the things that I really explored in the Lucifer's technology series is that these stories of creatures falling from the heavens and granting mankind all this advanced technology are very old. I mean, the obvious example is the Watchers, right? I mean, they fell from heaven onto Mount Hermon and taught the local tribes how to do all, you know, make weapons and read the stars and all this kind of thing, right? But there's also like the Kabiri, the great gods of Samothrace, where they actually, they crashed earth in like a flaming rock that opened up. And then they, these like crab-like creatures, you know, these man crabs with pinchers for hands come out and then they teach metalworking and weapons making, all these kind of arts to primitive people. So these stories are pretty universal. So you really have to kind of wonder, given the commonality of theme is there some basis in reality maybe not reality as we understand it like a physical reality but is there some metaphysical reality behind it right and i like what you're saying with the ritual is the blueprint so we can look at so many instances of the contact being ritualized that when you think about this biggest event in modern history that maybe transformed technology and the progression of all of it, you would think there'd have to be some ritual attached. But I guess that part is still a bit of a blind spot. I mean, we have the seance of the Council of Nine. Seems like that yielded some influence for sure. Uh, We know Parsons was doing the Babylon working, which maybe isn't exactly connected to his rocketry, but maybe it kind of is. We even talked about when Amoramua was in the sky, like the Harvest Festival wasn't long before it. And there just seems to be this cause and effect of, to use a telephone analogy, you dial up the number and then something answers on the other side. And the ritual is the dialing up. 
But I guess we can't really identify the dialing up in the Roswell case, right? I mean, in the old post, you did talk about uh, a strange meeting where it seems like a lot of the brightest minds were gathered at some sort of lodge as if they maybe knew something was going to happen. And who knows what that lodge meeting really was about. But maybe that's where they called something up. I guess, have you gotten any sense of like, you know, if the ritual is the blueprint and we know the result, we know a part, the second part of it, do we know where the calling up part had happened? I think that's a complicated question that we're clearly not going to have access to the answers for. One of the reasons is because all the records from the Roswell Army Air Force Base from 1945 to 1950 have been destroyed or are lost, quote unquote. You know what I mean? So it's a kind of thing where we have to reconstruct the events, often according to like the gaps that are missing and sort of extrapolate what is filling those gaps. And myself and what I did in the, the series about Roswell and why I called it the Roswell working is because of the symbolism and the alignments that were just so clearly drawn from thousands of years of ritual history. And I'll give you an example of this. I mean, Roswell comes from the town of Rosewell in Scotland, which is the next town over from Roslyn, which is Roslyn Chapel. You're familiar with that mm-hmm. <laughs> old Da Vinci Code, Knights Templar, the Sinclair family, all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's a very interesting connection there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual crash or the reported crash took place in Corona, right? Hello. Yeah, Corona. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, it's kind of funny because when I was doing this series, it was in the wake of the rather underwhelming X-Files season 10. But the interesting thing about it is that it linked the crash at Roswell to this pandemic. Do you remember that? I mean, I don't know if you no. remember. <laughs> yeah, so like it starts off with talking about the crash at Roswell and how it, it led to all this technology that the elites were able to accrue. And the story ends up with this, what they call the Spartan virus. And the Spartan virus is you know, rather more <laughs> serious than what we're dealing with now. You know, it's an actual kind of old world plague where everybody's sort of killed, but it also has to do with the cure for the virus is injecting people with alien DNA. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, go back and watch those episodes because you're going to be like, oh, okay. But, you know, that's sort of like, that was kind of informing what I was doing with the series. But, you know, there's so much symbolism. So Wells themselves have a very long history and also with entity contact, which is really kind of interesting when you think about it. So the well figures heavily in the, the Ellicinian mysteries, you know, Demeter disguises herself as the old beggar woman at the well and so on. But in like the Celtic and Northern Europe countries, elves and fairies and nymphs and, you know, all these magical extra dimensional figures and beings, entities that they were always talking about that really informed so much of their belief system. They loved wells. They loved wells and they loved rivers. And that's why we have, you know, the siren and the Kelpie and all those variations on a theme. But particularly wells, because, you know, wells are like a liminal space. 
a well is a hole in the ground that's filled with water. So it's the meeting of earth and water, you know, two elemental forces. It's the same thing with swamps and wetlands and marshes and so on, that swamps and wetlands and marshes are seen as these liminal in-between places where the dimensions sort of meet and open up. So the crash itself takes place in Corona. And please go back and watch those X-Files episodes if you haven't already. But it took place on the plains of St. Augustine, which is named after St. Augustine, right? And Augustine is a very interesting person, you know, to be named after because Augustine really gave us or gave the Christian world because a lot of the material was either lost or destroyed. But, you know, Augustine talked about the demons of the air. You know, he talked about these beings in his books that would basically extra dimensional non-corporeal beings that would make deals with people, right? So let me let me just read you a bit of the St. Augustine because again, we're talking about this crash in Corona, you know, the crown and on and on and on and the plains of St. Augustine. So he talks about these beings, the demons of the air. They are provoked by injuries, you know, they're insulted, propitiated by gifts and services, i.e. sacrifice, rejoice in honors, rituals, and more explicitly, are delighted with a variety of sacred rites and are annoyed if any of them be neglected. Okay, so it's like these beings love the sacrifices and the gifts and the offerings and the honors and the praises and the prayers and get very annoyed if you neglect these things, right? (laughs) But the next paragraph is really fascinating. So on them, meaning on the demons of the air, depend the divinations of augurs, soothsayers, prophets, and the revelations of dreams, and also the miracles of the magicians. Hmm. Okay, so remember that Augustine is writing at a time where magic and science were basically contiguous, right? They were basically the same phenomenon. So he's writing about this, that magic and science, uh, science and magic, medicine, technology, however you want to term it, were a result of contact with these beings. Mm. So it's like we're three for three already, right? Right. So Roswell, Rosalind Chapel, uh, the Wells, so on and so forth. Corona, the crown. There's a whole, we can't get into everything because the level of detail here is insane. But the Corona, there's a connection to the book of Revelation and so on and so forth. Revelation 9, the locusts and so on. There's just too much to go into here, but this is where it really starts to get interesting, okay? So I talk about these historical precedents, these historical connections, right, to gods and angels and beings that would descend from the heavens and teach humankind technology, right? So the exact latitude for the Roswell so-called Roswell crash site on the plains of St. Augustine in Corona, it's 33.968418, which rounds off to 34 degrees, right? 34 degrees north. That is the exact latitude of Baalbek. Are you familiar with it? Of course. Wow. (laughs) You know, so this crash site happens on the same exact latitude as Baalbek. Okay. So Baalbek, that's the temple of Jupiter Amon, you know, the horned and hidden god, which I've talked about. And there's a lot of horned and hidden god 
symbolism that we get it to on Roswell. So we have the crash taking place on the exact latitude of Baalbek. And then in the, the Jews and the Christians saw Baalbek as being built by the watchers, you know, the giants, the Nephilim, right? Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, the watchers fall to earth at Mount Hermon. Okay. And the, the latitude of that is 33 degrees, 24 minutes, 58 seconds north. That's the exact latitude of downtown Roswell, New Mexico. So we're talking about this quote-unquote crash. It takes place on, you know, the symbolism could not be more highly loaded, right? Mm -hmm. And then brought to Roswell, okay? So the quote-unquote crash aligns with Baalbek, and Roswell aligns with Mount Hermon. So we have this double symbolism being encoded into this thing. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? So I just, I, those are just one too many coincidences for me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. But then there's the whole thing with Bell Labs, which is just a whole other situation and a whole other discussion. But there's all kinds of symbolism there as well. I mean, you know, Bell Labs, you know, was owned by AT&T, right? And became Lucent Technologies. And it's interesting because my wife had been working at Bell Labs at the time that they changed over to Lucent Technologies. And there was all this stuff about like Lucifer. And, and this is sort of the pun that I'm playing off in the title of the series. Like Lucent means Lucifer. It's a reference to Lucifer. But it's actually the exact meaning of Lucent is also the exact meaning of Cadmus. And Cadmus is this figure from ancient Greek mythology that is also connected to the great gods of Kabir, you know, the ones that crashed in the flaming stone and taught everyone how to work with metal and so on and so forth. So, I mean, the parallels and the precedents for all this are extensive. And, you know, I'm just sort of giving you like a few of the bullet points here, but it's very similar to what we talked about with the siren, where it's just like this, what I call semiotic overkill, where it's just hitting you over the head over and over and over and over again with the symbolism. And that's really the same thing that we're seeing with Roswell. Mm -hmm. So a couple interesting things here. I mean, I can maybe get into this on a future question, but Roswell also happened a year after Operation Crossroads which were these high altitude, I think they were hydrogen bomb tests in the South Pacific. Okay, so you know your magic, you know your voodoo, <laughs> you know, what are crossroads about? What do you go to the crossroads for? That's where you make the deal. So that's exactly a year before the Roswell event, you know, the events of Roswell began, you know, because the first day of the Roswell cycle, ritual cycle, was the radar return on July 1st, you know, where they spotted some fast-moving object that couldn't be identified. So that's exactly a year after Operation Crossroads in the South Pacific. Now, the interesting thing about that is that Operation Crossroads was being run out of Roswell Army Air Force Base. The people who were running the tests were stationed at Roswell, and one of which was General Ramey. And if you're UFO buff, I mean, you know that name, General Ramey and Roswell. Well, you know, Ramey is the Ram, and that ties back to 
the Horned and Hidden God and Baalbek and Gothard Tunnel and you know, just all the rest of it. I mean, it just never, it never ends with these people. You know? Right, right. And uh, I had read a book about Jack Parsons a couple years ago, and they talk frequently about one of his competitors who was stationed in Roswell, and he used to go back and forth to Roswell. I was like, that's weird. Why haven't I ever heard about that before? Because here we have rocketry science and magic and this hot spot for weird activity. But another thing I was going to mention, obviously we're going far off uh, script already from the outline we had, but you mentioned the connection with Revelations 9. And I did want to say that like back in college, I had this really great piece of art where it's got these locust-like beings with tails of scorpions as they're kind of described. And yeah, they look like a weird hybrid creature, a Lovecraftian thing. I always liked that art. But if you're trying to interpret what someone is saying and you're trying to translate complex language, locusts armed with the tails of scorpions, you know, what is the tail of a scorpion but a poison needle? And greys kind of look in their eyes like locusts. So, I mean, yeah, it could be a hybrid Lovecraftian creature or it could be like something that looks more like a grey armed with a needle and we're back to that X-Files motif of alien DNA and an alien inoculation injection. And it's just very weird. It's very weird. But 1947 is a long time ago. 73 years. I don't know if there's enough to say these are really connected, but thematically, there's some some weird hits. Well, first of all, I've actually covered this on the blog. And Revelation 9 is a star map. You know, it goes from Corona borealis each one of those descriptions in revelation 9 is referencing a constellation and it goes in order from corona borealis to corona australis which is the southern crown Mm -hmm. and it's my belief that the locusts at least as being described in that chapter are some kind of meteor shower and that there's some sort of prophetic you know, because Revelation is all stellar code. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that I'm probably going to have to do in a book or a movie or <laughs> some sort of, you know, not just blog post because it's so big. But, you know, the more I look at the Bible, you know, particularly the book of Revelations, you know, and all the big books too, like, you know, Exodus and Genesis and so on, it's all stellar. It's all stellar symbolism. And the reason that I can say that with confidence is that so much of it is just going in order from one constellation to the next constellation to the next constellation to the next constellation. And Revelation 9, you know, is a perfect example of that. You know, since you brought up Parsons a couple times, can I just go into this about Parsons? Sure, sure. Okay, so, you know, Parsons is a very interesting personage, Parsonage, for a number of different reasons. I mean, I know we talked about him in relation to Ghislaine Maxwell, you know, because of the familial connection there, which just still boggles my mind. But the interesting thing, so, you know, Parsons had the Babylon working, right? Mm -hmm. It started in January of 1946. And it's my strong belief, you know, because L. Ron Hubbard's military intelligence, as, you know, Hubbard and Cameron are both military intelligence, both naval intelligence. And I think they were both sent out there Hubbard admitted to it that he was sent out there to sort of keep an eye on what this guy was up to because he was involved in this sensitive work for rockets and so on. 
and I think Hubbard then drank the Kool-Aid, but Hubbard probably told Parsons, okay, listen, the U.S. Army Signal Corps in early January is doing Project Diana. And Project Diana was the first quote-unquote contact with a extraterrestrial body because they bounced radar signals off the moon. And this was done at Fort Monmouth, which is about an hour south of me, right? Now, this was done during Babylon working, okay? Mm -hmm. It's the same. And one of the reasons why I have a very strong feeling about Hubbard knowing about this and timing this ritual to Project Diana is like Diana Dianetics, right? Mm -hmm. And we knew that he had this sort of weird obsession with Diana's moon god, right? And Babylon's a very sort of a catch-as-catch-can construction of a bunch of different goddesses. But you can certainly make a lot of connections to, you know, moon goddesses, you know, Diana and so on. So they do the Babylon working, you know, in Pasadena, and then they end out in the Mojave Desert. And that's where he claims to have the contact with the Minutian woman. You know, probably was just another, you know, some sort of honeypot whore from military intelligence <laughs> sent out to rendezvous with him and, and tell him that he was a, a Venusian or something. Right. So shortly after that, the ghost rockets flare up over Scandinavia. And that's in February. So Parsons and Hubbard are doing this big working in California. Technically lasted until March, right? So. In the middle of it, so it's January, February, March, and so literally in the middle of it, the ghost rockets begin. You know, rockets, rocket technician, <laughs> rocket scientist, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the other interesting connection here, too, is that after Parsons and Hubbard sort of fall out, Hubbard ends up in New Jersey, on the Jersey Shore, about 10 minutes from Fort Monmouth. You know, a 10-minute drive from Fort Monmouth. So to me, that seems to be a little too closely connected to this symbol system that I'm referring to, to be accidental. Right. But the thing is, is that this all takes place six months before Operation Crossroads. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's this line of ritualism, this line of the marriage of high technology and ritual symbolism that's really starting in you know January after the war and then spreads all the way to Roswell and there are all these connections between all these people you know there are all these just like strange connections you know this guy was at Roswell and this person was here and this person was there that you really can't dismiss the connections anymore you have to sort of take them at face value and then ask yourself like what do these connections mean why are these people doing this and this is why i really came to the conclusion that these um, rituals that I'm referring to are all very deliberate and they're all for a purpose. And for some reason, the people taking part in these rituals gain some sort of power from them because if they didn't, they wouldn't still do them. Right. Right. You know, 2000 years later, you know, if it was all just superstition and if it was all just, you know, some sort of 
crazy sex thing or whatever, you know, whatever the motivation would be for doing it, they just wouldn't do it. They would get sick of it and do something else. Mm-hmm. And they don't. And matter of fact, the rituals are accelerating. So what context do we place this in? Oh, the other thing that I wanted to mention too, I don't know if I talked about Algol with you, the demon star, but during the war, L. Ron Hubbard was stationed on the USS Algol. (laughs) (laughs) Algol is a popular cryptocurrency now too. Oh my God. (laughs) There you go. Don't buy it. Right. (laughs) Um, It's it's not going to work out. So again, there's this really obsessive attention to these rituals. And I think, you know, like naval intelligence has a lot to do with it because, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the series is this guy, Herbert Knowles. I think we talked about him when we talked about Ghislaine. Yeah. Navy intelligence in the, in the East coast area. And then like all these major events on the UFO hit parade are taking place in like a 200 mile radius of his house, you know, which sounds like really big, but I mean, just like think of what a 200 mile radius would be in like in the state of Texas. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's your daily commute or something. You know what I mean? So, (laughs) cause you know, you talk about the nine, those nine summonings take place right up the road from him. Yeah. In Maine. Yeah, In Maine. And you know, Betty and Barney Hill. Yeah, exactly. The alpha channelings. I mean, all this stuff is taking place, you know, somehow around this guy who's clearly naval intelligence, clearly had some connection to operation paperclip. So it's like everything that's going on now. So, you know, we talk about this stuff that's historical, but I think that the events that were set in motion are now beginning to come to fruition. (laughs) Well, yeah, if you look at almost every area, kind of like I went over in that intro and talk about on so many episodes, all the different areas of advancements, whether it's food or medicine or just any application of science it's made things worse. That's why so many shows are about getting back to nature and natural medicine or or biology, because the fruits of medical science, of food science, they're the things that are completely destroying the planet. I mean, it's apparently impossible to not have glyphosate in your body at this point. And it's hard to even grow crops that aren't infected with the GMO monopoly, like they seem to take over crops. And once it's in there, it never comes back out. And then it gets in our body from eating it. Like these things aren't good. I'm really skeptical of almost every area in which science is gone. Just technology, of course. We don't have to talk much about that. I mean, the whole digital takeover and the technocracy, like I can't think of an area really where the gifts of science have just been positive. And maybe that's because they're applied by the least among us, the technocratic elite, or maybe it's because the elite are getting these ideas from something that also has a a dark, twisted way of giving gifts. And, you know, to talk about these beings themselves a little bit, we were going to um, talk about this added log to the fire you you worked on recently you say it's the missing puzzle piece and you were circling around the work of carl rashke in his writings on ultra terrestrial agents of cultural deconstruction which is not only a great phrase but also a great analysis of high strangeness and the ufo to quote him he says 
I substitute the prefix ultra where one would expect extra so as to stress that the phenomena in question may be not only from beyond the Earth, but from outside the very matrix of space, time, and matter. Furthermore, the visitors, rather than systematically studying our ways out of magisterial curiosity, may be working with methodical dispatch to make us transparently conscious of, if not to elevate us toward, the realm in which they move and have their being. So I really do just love that, and I'm glad that you brought this to my attention because I was totally unaware of Carl Raschke, but he thought these beings, he calls them ultra-terrestrial agents of cultural deconstruction. That's exactly what we're talking about, that the fruits that they've offered us, they go to a dark place. Well, it's funny that last sentence, the realm in which they move and have their being. What does that sound like to you? I'll tell you what that sounds like to me is DMT. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So there's a new movie out. There's a new documentary about some new super DMT as if DMT wasn't enough alone. There's a new documentary. These three guys had experimented with this new variant of DMT, which just scares the hell out of me because I know a bunch of thrill seekers going to try and you know, walk in their footsteps. So what we're seeing now is the dawn of MKUltra 2, a lot of money, a lot of money is being put into psychedelic research, quote unquote. And psychedelics are very powerful tools, but you know, a powerful tool can also become a powerful weapon. Mm -hmm. And this ties into, you know, Rashke doesn't cite this by name, but this ties into my admittedly idiosyncratic, unique, and rather bizarre interpretation of MKUltra. That MKUltra was not solely about mind control, creating mind-controlled assassins. That was the side effect, right? And I know I lose a lot of people when I talk about this, but I really believe that the ultimate goal of MKUltra was entity possession was preparing people for entity possession. You know, if you want to go into why I believe that and why I'm more certain of that than ever before, you know, we can talk about that in a bit. But when he says that, transparently conscious of, if not elevate towards us, the realm in which they move and have their being, you know, what does that sound like to you? That's like, oh, the machine elves, the machine elves. The, you're the elite, sir. You know, Alex Jones, right, right? right? You know what I mean? So maybe he isn't so far off in the first place. I mean, everybody goes, oh, they're turning the frogs gay. Well, you know, that's Alex Jones and his hyperbole. But the study that he was talking about were these chemicals, these hormonal chemicals that were polluting frog habitats and um, changing their gender, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So, when Rashke talks about that, that to me is the smoking gun, is this whole DMT, ayahuasca, or any powerful variants of LSD and SDP and all this kind of stuff, you know, these really super potent hallucinogens that take you out of this world and put you into another world. And we've had so many 
reports of people having these experiences that are so consistent across geography and demographics and time that if these people were all just making it up or getting the ideas from things that they've read, I mean, that really wouldn't play out, particularly, you know, the work of Rick Strassman, right? Because mm-hmm. that was not being well publicized. You know, he wasn't publishing that those findings at the time. So somebody would go, oh, I want to go meet these machine elves. I'm going to go take some DMT at this test. So that to me is like the smoking gun. And that's the thing that really opened it up for me because I had all these components, all these elements, all these things, like I said, that I was playing with, and I just didn't know where to go with it. Like, where am I going with this? Like, I have all this information. I've made all these connections. What is this about? Where is this proceeding to? And I think what it's proceeding to is this process here that I'm talking about and what I call the rise of MKUltra 3.0, which is all these well-funded hallucinogenic studies in universities and so on. You know, but we have the example of, you know, all these people at Silicon Valley. I don't know if they're still doing it, but, you know, the whole idea of microdosing was a big thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that these drugs and so on are pretty reliable methods of contacting these beings. Oh, yeah. And I think they always have been. And I think that what we're moving towards now I hate this example or, you know, this metaphor because it's just so overused. But, you know, like the whole Matrix thing where, like, the Matrix is using people as batteries. And that to me is almost like my fear of this is, like, moving all these people who've been so destroyed, whose psyches have been so destroyed by this process, and then giving this rocket fuel into the other dimension, right? And just being preyed upon. Mm Mm-hmm. Just being food for these entities, basically. (laughs) Yeah, I'm very split on the psychedelic stuff because I am appreciative that I had an experience of seeing behind the veil and it seemed pretty positive to me. But obviously entities can be deceptive and maybe there's a range of entities and not all of them are necessarily negative. But you would suspect that if the CIA and naval intelligence is traumatizing people and keeping them in these extended states that it might be negative beings that are more attracted to that kind of modality. I don't know. But just because I've had my own experience that was positive, I'm a little split. But it seems like these aren't the people you want messing with this kind of stuff. And it's probably supposed to happen more in an indigenous context with a learned shaman who can kind of discern between certain entities perhaps rather than a deep state basement you don't think so no it's going to be industrialized it's it's already it's happening as we speak yeah so you know you mentioned the nine you know we've talked about the nine before how were the nine contacted how did this whole nine process sustain itself for so long where they ended up taking over like this is something that people at Esalen don't want to admit but the nine were running Esalen for like five or six years. Hmm. Okay. It wasn't just like Dick Price, you know, met this English chick with big jugs and she sort of got him like into this whole thing. And then he was like all drugged out and crazy. And he just sort of fell for this whole thing for a couple months. No, no, this was like a number of years that the nine through Jenny O'Connor and probably other people, John Whitmore and so on 
We're controlling Esalen. Now, think about this for a minute, because we have the connection with Esalen in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Palo Alto. It's almost like this little city-state of its own in central California, right? Going from uh, San Francisco, Palo Alto, the Bay Area, you know, down to Esalen, which is sort of the southernmost point of this. And the thing that I really got onto this is because of the Council of Nine were not only running Esalen, but they were clearly, at least, if not in control, but, you know, extremely influential in the Star Trek franchise, right. which at that time was at the height of its popularity and influence. So we have this confluence of events with this weird channeling cult that absolutely nobody would take seriously is controlling the future <laughs> it's controlling how the future is unfolding because it's controlling the influencers in silicon valley and in science fiction hollywood right i believe the inventor of the helicopter and his wife were there that was another one. Oh yeah all sorts of people asters i mean you name it you know i believe that herbert knowles was probably involved in this and just isn't mentioned in the literature but i find it hard to believe that he wouldn't be so it's just this really strange thing that people don't take seriously because they're conditioned not to take seriously. You know, the condition like, don't look behind the curtain, right? Mm -hmm. But if you look behind the curtain, you're going to find <laughs> ultra-dimensional entities, at least people believing in ultra-dimensional entities controlling their thoughts and their lives. So What's the difference, really? You know, what's the difference between somebody who's actually being controlled by an ultra-dimensional entity and somebody who believes that he is and is acting accordingly? There's no difference. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And we've talked before about artists who tap into something, the ones who really do seem to get the strongest connection to something on the other side are the ones who produce works that end up being the most popular or people seem to resonate with them because they are inspired by something on the other side. I think that's really interesting. And moving right along with kind of the content in this post, you asked the big question which that I have, which is if these entities, these MK ultra terrestrials, we'll call them, if these entities inspired or bestowed our technology, what were they after? What goal were they working towards by giving we idiotic meat monkeys a book of metaphorical matches? Maybe the plan isn't just to reduce humanity back to savagery. Maybe the ultra-terrestrials have something else in store for us. What would that something else be? Help us get a better sense of their goals. Is it just to further influence us? Is it to get us to invite them into our world like some weird vampire lore rules or something? Pretty much. I would say that just look at what's going on around you now. Look at the rates of autism and autism spectrum disorders, how they've gone from one in 10,000 when I was born, births, one in 10,000 births, to one in 88 births today. Go look at corners of Twitter where you have people self-identifying as, well, what is it now? It's like, trans communist satanist <laughs> minor attracted person so it's just like you know like i i don't know how serious it it might be but you know this isn't like somebody calling them that you know as a pejorative this is how they self-identify and there are a lot of them online and a lot of them you know getting involved in hacking and coding now 
there is a strange overlap there for sure with the the coding and that kind of community. And when you start using pronouns like Zem and Zer and them and they. It sounds like an alien. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like an alien, right? Them and they sounds like two beans in one body or something. Like it does get weird. Where do they get the idea that they're now a they? It, it's strange. Well, I'll tell you something. You know, this is the whole idea of the grand unified secret sun theory that I'm straining towards ever so slowly because there's always been, at least starting with the hill abduction, there's always been the idea that the greys, the aliens, which became the predominant type of alien, the grey, they were androgynous. They were sexless, right? They had no visible genitalia. They were just these androgynous beings. But this ties back, and this is something that I've done on the blog as well, is that I'm I noticed something really interesting about ancient and medieval depictions of the angels and the archangels is that they're all trans. According to the theology or the interpretations of theology, the angels are all male identifying, but they all look like women. Mm -hmm. And this goes back very, very far to the earliest days of organized Christianity. You know, when you're actually starting to have graven images, which before were frowned upon. So what does that entail that, you know, the ultra terrestrials in that cosmology are also androgynous? Mm -hmm. And then we have this whole idea of androgyny rising in these certain communities that I'm referring to. And one of the things that I've also pointed out throughout history is go back and look at Egypt, right? Ancient Egypt, how do you tell the men and the women apart? Well, the only way you can tell them apart is that the men have those glued-on beards. You know, they dress the same, they wear the same wigs and the same makeup. Eyeliner. Yeah, the heavy eyeliner and the mascara and stuff. So this whole idea of elite androgyny goes back forever. You know, it goes back to Sumer, really. Mm -hmm. And you know what's also weird? I've just kind of had this idea, but I remember old interviews with Tracy Twyman and she would talk about Mithraic cults and the priesthoods castrating themselves. And I always just kind of thought that was weird. I was like, what could possibly possess someone to castrate themselves, especially in ancient times where you got pretty rudimentary methods of doing that. But man, I guess if you get possessed enough, you might do that. And what's going on today, but some form of chemical medical castration that people are deciding they want to do to themselves. Oh, and it's also being done to us. I mean, look what they're talking about with like the sperm counts and, you know, just the overall lack of libidinous <laughs> inspiration in young people today. You know, all these chemicals and, you know, you talked about the EMF and the computers and all this technology is at the very least suppressing that youthful lust, you know, the erotic drive that was so typified of young people for so long. And now that seems to be waning, which is really kind of fascinating, particularly as like online porn and explicit imagery and say like Cardi B videos or whatever, just seems to become more and more prevalent. It seems to have this like weird paradoxical effect. So, I mean, what are we moving towards? I mean, there are so many facets of this. There's so many components of this that I'm just basically bumbling through right now. But I'm starting to just line things up. I'm starting to make these connections. I'm starting to see these patterns repeat over and over again, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that 
preparing, if not the masses, but certainly a elite or an influential group of people, people involved in certain fields, coding, and so on, preparing them to become vessels. And that sounds, you know, really extreme to a lot of people. And I, and I admit that it sounds like kind of loopy, but there is precedent for it. And there's precedent for it throughout history. And, you know, we've seen UFO sightings in the ancient world at very critical times in our history. So you really just have to wonder. I mean, I'm not like an ET. You know, I'm not an ET guy, right? Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. I've never been, a, you know, I'm not a nuts and bolts guy. It's just not the way I'm wired. But there are all these other possibilities. And like I said, there's this whole very reliable method now of contacting these entities. And as Rashke says, being sort of drawn up into their reality. And that's things like DMT. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. And going back to Carl Rashke's stuff, he was kind of trying to explain in this paper what it is that people are seeing. You know, he's using the term the UFO a lot. So like high strangeness sightings that people have. And that's where my question would be, why take the form they take? Flying saucers, orbs of light, maybe even cryptids and Mothman. If people are seeing these things and they're trying to push people a certain way. If we leave the channeling aside, just random folks out on a country road seeing a metal saucer. I mean, so many people struggle to make sense of their experiences or they just shut them out altogether. Is that the most effective way to shepherd us towards an end goal? These strange sightings of silver ships and orbs and that kind of thing. Do you put that in the same box? Because that's kind of what Carl Rashke was talking about. Do you consider those other ways to influence us well first of all we can't ascribe human motivations to these entities we don't understand how they think let's just say these alleged entities or hypothetical entities we don't know how they think we don't know what they're after we don't know how they work you know we don't understand the methodologies but in the grand scheme of things if you look at the changes in culture and technology, you know, medicine, cultural attitudes, religion, so on and so forth, since 1947. I mean, if you go back to 1947, it's almost like you're in a different world. There are certain things that you'll see the same houses and you know, people are still driving cars and trains. It's fascinating to me how much our earthly modes of transportation haven't changed at all since then, right? But it's just going to be a different world. It's going to be a very different world. People are going to think entirely differently than they do today. They're going to speak in manners that we don't recognize. There's just going to be all these changes. So in the grand scheme of things, 70 years, 75 years, that's an eye blink in the context of history. You know, in the context of history, never mind geological history, just in human history, that's like the next day. That's not any kind of interval at all. That's almost immediate. You know, one thing I talk about when I talked about the whole premise behind Lucifer's technology is that 
technology wasn't much different in 1740 AD as it was in 1740 BC, right? Technology had, you know, we had these sort of little hills and dells going over the course of history, you know. Somebody really bright like Hero of Alexander would show up and start working with steam engines and primitive robotics and all that kind of stuff. But it's just basically flatlined. And then it starts to rise up with the dawn of the 20th century, ironically, after, say, like the airship hoax or craze or however you want to describe it, you know, but the first major mass UFO phenomena, even though it was described to just human beings were a little ahead of the curve. But that leads to, you know, the motor car, the airplane, the telephone, you know, all these kind of things that really made these huge differences in the way people lived. And then after the war, with Roswell and all these other things that we're discussing, we have this vertical rise, I mean, just this steep vertical ascent in electronic technology. Mm -hmm. You know, so the interesting thing is that, you know, people confuse technology and electronics, and they're not always the same thing. So, you know, the technology of like, say, electrification, indoor plumbing, television, telephones, through all the different parts of the country, you know, rural parts that were once pretty isolated. And that's technology, right? That's a massive leap in technology. But then we have this vertical leap with the electronics. But the interesting thing about it is that it's conditioned us to believe, A, that this upward climb is going to last forever. And in fact, it stopped, you know, like the rate of technological and scientific discovery has basically ended, you know, we're past the age of discovery now. And I believe very strongly that we're going to start to see our technology decline because of the lack of expertise, because there's a certain mentality that you need to maintain this massive technological infrastructure, you know, like a work ethic that younger people just simply don't have because they've grown up taking all this stuff for granted, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those charts that you posted that show the, the technological progress, they also coincide with the timeline for depression, deaths of despair, drug deaths, divorce rate, the decline of spirituality. These are all trends that take a, a real nosedive right at that same time after 1947, which would be signs of this ultra-terrestrial cultural deconstruction. Well, that's Rasky's argument. Right. He doesn't, to the best of my knowledge, state that out loud. But that's his basic argument. That at the same time, we've had this technological explosion. We've had this, this human precipitous drop. You know, one of the things that Rasky talks about, and I couldn't find the quote for it online, but I know that when I first became familiar with his work, he talked about like how just the very presence of these UFOs of, you know, what you talk about, like these sporadic sightings and these things just showing up here and there, that they have a demoralizing effect. They have a demoralizing effect on people because like all of a sudden we're not at the top of the food chain anymore. All of a sudden, maybe all our technology that we take such pride in isn't all that impressive. And maybe all our technology came from somewhere else, right? That's part of this deconstruction process is in wartime, you always go after the enemy's morale, right? You know, and we're seeing this now with the constant assault on like American history from like the woke 
brigades. You know, this constant assault on our science and our math. <laughs> like math is racist now, right? Right. Just, and uh, ironically, a study funded by Bill Gates. Like, what's his motivation for getting you know people of color to believe that math is a white thing? You know, what's that? You know, that's the, Gates is a whole other discussion entirely. But you know, so Rashke's argument is just like the fact that we're confronted with a superior technology that doesn't really seem to care all that much about getting into contact with us. That to me is more demoralizing than if they like landed on the White House lawn. If they landed on the White House lawn, that would entail that they took us seriously enough to want to initiate open diplomacy. Right. And not like they just like, we're just lab Like we're like, you know, in those discovery channel documentaries where you know they set up all these hidden cameras all over the place and observe i don't know gorillas or tigers or whatever you know just observe their behavior and so on and that's basically what the inference is by how we perceive the ufo phenomenon whether or not it's based in any kind of objective reality is irrelevant okay it's what i'm talking about it's like if you believe that you're possessed by some sort of entity that has this agenda, you're really convinced of it, that's not going to change anything if that entity is just totally imaginary. You are going to act the same exact way that somebody who believes that entity is real would. And it's the same thing with UFOs. I mean, whether or not the UFOs are real, they are deconstructing our place in the universe. They're deconstructing our sense of ourselves and look at when they show up. They show up after the war, which was basically a battle of technologies, right? The rise of the UFOs is concurrent with like this whole scientism, you know, like the whole rise of the cold, rational 50s man who has no time for superstition or spirituality, you know, like the sort of Ann Randian figure, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of John Galt figure, right? So it's concurrent with that. And what happens on the tail end of that? So, you know, we start the 50s with the UFO thing, and then we have like events like the Washington, D.C. flyovers in 52 and so on and so forth. And what's at the tail end of that? The tail end of that is Timothy Leary and LSD at Harvard. And then that soon leads into this whole 60s Aquarian revolution. And, you know, even though I don't personally believe that this was all some CIA PSYOP, CIA certainly were very involved in it, right? There's no question about that. They were helped exacerbate trends that have been repeating throughout history. You know, like we've had countercultural explosions long before there was ever a CIA, right? Mm -hmm. So I think those kind of explanations are simplistic, but we certainly can't argue against that. So... We see ourselves, like I said, a totally different world in 1947. Most people, they go to church, they don't really believe it. You know, it's not something that they really, it's just a social obligation, right? And then we have this whole 50s thing and the march of science and the march of progress and the scientific man, the modern man, the space age, Sputnik and all this kind of thing. And what does that all ultimately lead to? It all leads to Woodstock and Altamont and mm -hmm. Charles Manson, right? So it's really a very fascinating experiment. You know, if you want to test this whole idea of cultural deconstruction, well, there it is, right? It's like right there in front of you. It's laid out in front of you. And, and if you look at, say, the psychedelic movement 
particularly in San Francisco and London. I mean, UFOs were a huge part of it. UFO iconography. I mean, like the UFO club in London was where like the Pink Floyd and all those groups played. So whether or not you believe in the objective reality of the UFO is almost irrelevant when it comes to testing Rashke's thesis, I think. So let's round this out by talking about your latest book a bit, The Endless American Midnight. It's a 300-page volume of new and revised material, including some of your most popular essays. It's a dark rumination around the theme of where we are and how we got here, as you say. What more would you tell people about its contents as we're wrapping this thing up? Well, I've been working on this for four years, since 2017, and I just couldn't figure out how to take all this information, you know, like I said, 15 years of work on the blog and have it make any sense. But I think, you know, everything that was going on in 2020 with the riots and just, you know, this explosion of insanity over the summer really helped focus my mind. And like you said, I was looking at like, where are we and how did we get here? One of the things I landed on that I've been writing about for a number of years was just like this process of disenchantment that we've allowed the process of disenchantment that people were writing about 100 years before this to really overtake our lives and people embrace it rather than sort of escape from it or shunned it or what have you. So we had things like, you know, these internet contagions, you know, the skeptic movement and the new atheist movement, you know, that these movements that are almost forgotten today, but were very, very aggressive and evangelizing when a lot of these things were being written and how that paradoxically led to this whole woke contagion, even though so many of these people were militantly anti-woke, but I think the way that they combated woke just only strengthened woke and writing about wokeness all these things that have just completely damaged the social fabric that have just completely rent any idea of america united states of america being anything just but a late empire you know like we're rome in the third century we're an empire on the the verge of dissolution and maybe it's inevitable, and maybe it can't be reversed, but one of the things that I try to do in the book is say, well, this is how we got here. Maybe we can do something about it. And maybe the way you start doing something about it is expelling yourself, you know, breaking their spells and exercising their demons from your head. Stop thinking yourself as a cog in a machine. Start thinking yourself as a spiritual being who has value and who has potential and who has possibility and isn't just somebody who's just subject to these forces. Yeah, these forces are powerful. They seem overwhelming, but maybe they aren't. You know, maybe we've just allowed them to brainwash us or fool us into following this agenda. So I took all this material that was sort of tracing how we had gotten to this point and tried to have it make sense you know, looking at politics, looking at science, looking at culture, you know, how these modes of thinking that have become so destructive to us really took root. So like I said at the beginning, this is not a feel-good book. You know, this book isn't going to make you feel good, but it's not intended to do so. It's intended to sort of wake you up and get people thinking. Right on. Well, I think people here will definitely be into that. 
And we also have to leave them with a bit about the Patreon that you're putting some effort into called the Secret Sun Institute of Advanced Synchro Mysticism. You've got a lot of great stuff in there, including a bunch of interviews with people like Nick Redfern, Eric Davis, Tracy Twyman, and Alan Greenfield. Definitely interesting to hear you talking to these people, as knowledgeable as you are. Tell them a bit about the Patreon and your plans for it. Well, it's like the name implies. It's sort of tongue-in-cheek in some ways, but in some ways it isn't. Like, I want to take this whole idea of synchromysticism and make it a, what I call a legitimate form of woo. <laughs> you know? Because synchromysticism, I think, is something that most people experience in their lives constantly, or at least regularly, right? And it's something that people can really identify with and it's something that people can grasp, but there's not really any focus to it. The synchromistic community, as it were, is largely inactive. Most synchromistic bloggers have stopped blogging. And the people who remain don't really have any interest or contact in each other's work. So it might be overly ambitious, but I want to construct this format and it's you know it's a new format i'm probably going to take it into an enclosed environment and you know secretsun.com but i want it to be a place where we can start to think of this stuff as not just like a little head game we play when we get high or whatever and start thinking of like this is a way to start to understand the world this is a way to start to understand the world that we live in because it certainly changed the way i see the world and i think that the only thing stopping it from taking root in a way that people can begin to work with it is that there's no infrastructure to support it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what I'm doing. So, you know, what I'm starting off with is I'm taking like these big, long interviews that I've done over the years that are just sort of marking out the boundaries. You know, I'm not presenting this as any kind of organized syllabus, but I'm picking the material that I'm posting very deliberately to start, you know, you know, Nick Redfern, we were talking about the Collins elite and the whole idea of the ultra-terrestrials, right? Alan Greenfield, you know, the secret cipher of the euphonauts, you know, his own take on the ultra-terrestrials, which was sort of informed by Crowleyism and Thelema and so on. Tracy, talking more in the context of the whole ancient astronaut theory and, and her rejoinder to that which I think is really kind of unique because I couldn't really find any other material online where she is addressing those topics directly. And I got her to really go on record and her take 11 years ago now was very much along the lines of Rashke, which is kind of ironic because you couldn't really find two more different people in the world than Tracy Twyman and Carl Rashke, but you know, they sort of saw things along the same lines. So again, I'm just planting stakes and just trying to map this out so when i start doing say more original discussions people will have a context with it but i want it to all just be driven towards maybe like a more structured understanding of it because I, I can't see any reason why synchromysticism should be seen as any less valid as i don't know tarot shamanism i mean you name it mm -hmm. like i said i want to make it establish this as a legitimate form of woo <laughs> because 
at present time, it just seems to be this weird sort of appendage. It's sort of, it floats around conspiracy theory or it floats around this or it floats around that. But I think that there's been enough work done and I think the results are predictive enough that it should become its own form. Yeah. Well, I think that's a worthy goal. A legitimate form of woo is a, a great phrase too, kind of an oxymoron to people who don't like woo. So I think that's uh, on the nose, man. It's pretty great. And after all the excellent work you've done on the blog and all the time you've given to THC, I do hope people will take the plunge into some of the books or the Patreon just as a way of saying thanks. And I'm certainly grateful for your time once again. I think a lot of the stuff we talked about today gets to the core of this otherworldly influence and its effects on humanity more than most of the conversations I hear in the paranormal space. So it is much appreciated. Anything else to leave the people with? I think we covered it all in great depth. <laughs> in great depth. I'm feeling really good about like this discussion. I hope you are too. Yes, 100%. Well, as always, you are the man. This has been a lot of fun. Enjoy the rest of the downward spiral as best you can, man. Uh, and, and have hope too. You know, I mean, <laughs> one of the things that I'm constantly trying to struggle against, and it's hard because of our conditioning from religion and Hollywood, is that, like the apocalypse is the unveiling. You know, there's a, yeah. you know, it's a, big show with a lot of fireworks and so on but i think that ultimately it's a very positive thing and if people actually go back and read the book of revelations it all ends you know with the new jerusalem and the new heaven and earth so that's obviously a christian interpretation even though i think it's very i think the book of revelation is very gnostic but the whole idea of stop thinking about like confusing apocalypse with armageddon or stop thinking about like in terms of like bad arnold schwarzenegger movies and start seeing as like the scales falling from your eyes and the veils falling away and things being revealed for how they really are because i will tell you this with great confidence is that the way things really are is a lot more fulfilling and exciting and fascinating and magical than the way you are told every day to believe that they are mm -hmm. Well said. Yes, it's like we're going to be confirming all the THC-style speculation we've been going over for so many years, which is bittersweet, but who doesn't like to be right? Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Well, right on, man. This has been a great one. So psyched to get this out to the people and take care out there. Enjoy the rest of the day. I like this show, people. Rocking the Casbah for the ninth time with the true king of Synchro Mystic Swing. And it is hard for me to pick a favorite Chris Knowles thread when he's got so many irons in the fire. But for me, I think it is Lucifer's technology with the Roswell working as the subcategory of that because it makes a lot of sense to me. And so many people are on a different page with Roswell that it makes Chris's position even more unique. But if you pay attention to this kind of stuff, it feels like as time goes on, we get more confirmation that the elite are involved in channeling, not less. American Cosmic is another story that has that kind of flavor to it. And even just the fact that the Invisible College would want to consult and bring in a professor of religious studies, it's got to make you wonder. So maybe the architects of technological progress are non-human, 
And maybe that's a story that goes all the way back to the civilizing trickster, to Thoth and Hermes and all these cedars of culture and knowledge. You know, it's a theme that's always been there, but the mind blower would be that it still goes on today. And of course, not all civilizing tricksters have to have the same intention, but it does feel like they come from the same place, that the mechanisms of reaching out to them are mainly the same. I don't know, but I hope you liked this one. We went a bit off script as we tend to do, but we didn't even get time to talk about the ancient jed pillars and how they look like high voltage insulators. You can look it up if you just search jed or djed. It's D-J-E-D, but it's these ancient Egyptian looking pillars and they look exactly like some kind of transformer. And it makes you wonder, how old is this connection between the occult and technology? But with electricity, I would reference Ross Ben deconstructing Ben Franklin and that silly myth of the key on the kite string in the lightning storm. I doubt it worked out that way, especially when this guy is deep in with the Hellfire Club, they're finding bodies buried under his estate. I could see this being another vector where the father of electricity probably didn't arrive at things the way the story presents it. It feels to me like the elite made a deal with something or decided to take its lead, and only now are they seeing that it really was the seeds of destruction that were planted, and maybe that is why they are in freakout mode. Who's to say, but it's certainly a good time talking to Chris as always. Do show some support by picking up one of his books or joining this new Patreon. So many great interviews released already, so much crossover with previous THC guests, but you get Chris running the interview. It's good stuff. But thanks again to Chris, who went long with me once again, as we tend to do. I think we talked for two hours and 20 minutes. Obviously, sign up for Plus if you like what I do and the guests that I do it with. In today's extra hour, we talked about cosmic communism. Restoring the old cults of state, the nosedive of TTSA and the destruction of ufology attempt, the role of Vannevar Bush, keeping possibility alive, synchromysticism in the ultra-terrestrials, and the 1983 portal. You know you like THC. You know it's worth $8. To double your time, click the link in the show notes and get the whole enchilada. You also get access to the forum, which I've made improvements to and updates to recently. The chat just got added, as did groups, so you can now form any groups you want, replacing another Facebook feature. Love to see that. But that is where you will find me, and I'll see you next time. Leave me a message at thehiresidechats.com slash voicemail if this prompted any thoughts that you want to tell me about. Maybe it'll give me something to talk about on the next joint session this upcoming week. But until then, I am getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, sorcerer, scientists, technocratic tinkers, and ultra-terrestrial obeyers. Your fucking move. From space it was falling, its light started calling, it's making crop circles again. Just as I was looking up, it showed me all the hidden stuff And now I'm all enlightened and zen Waking up the masses is hard Silver ships are coming yard by yard Now I'm not asleep, don't
set me straight I encourage you to go When you see the saucers glow One by one we'll all end up awake Enlightening the masses is hard Silver ships are coming yard by yard Now we're not asleep Don't obey the elite Got a beam to the head Now we start to wonder No, we're not the sheep That they bred us to be Got a beam to the head Now we start to wonder starts to die cabals hate it when we make it so they'll break it and next round they'll erase it it's a big loop what can we do still it's time we had another cause we're not 